It is a privilege to be back again at Beth Messiah Congregation, and I trust that this morning's uh, sermon will be uh, enlightening as well as, uh, as uh, inspiring uh, as we seek to understand what it means to follow Yeshua and pursue a life that he calls us to with passion and, with, and in his kindness. Greg is an undergraduate at North Park University. That's where I teach. He's a Gentile follower of Yeshua, someone who grew up in the church uh, and has a maturing faith. Um, While I I don't know him well, Greg seems to me to be a a committed follower of Yeshua. And I was teaching a three-week intensive class on Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, and Greg was in this class. Um, and at North Park, every student has to take two courses in biblical and theological studies. Um, sometimes it's a surprise to them that they have to, uh, but, uh, but we are a university in the Christian tradition, and so students in order to graduate have to take a couple courses in the department in which I teach. And so this is where uh, Greg uh, was finding himself one uh, May uh, in this class on, on uh, Yeshua. Uh, it's my custom uh, to give a first lecture in this course on David and the significance of understanding David for understanding uh, the life, uh, ministry, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. And in this first lecture, I intend to provide, provide the necessary biblical framework uh, for seeing the significance of Yeshua's mission and message. In the lecture, I argue that The Bible is the story of David. Uh, The subject of Scripture is is David from Genesis to Revelation. It happens then to be sort of the topic of this symposium this weekend is the kingship of God um, on earth, and that has a particular uh, form which is focused on this uh, promise that God makes with David, recorded in uh, 2 Samuel and also in Chronicles. Well, uh, Greg's response to the lecture is why I present it at the beginning of the course. Greg expressed in a journal reflection uh, how important it was for him to understand David as the basis for understanding Yeshua and the theology that comes out of the apostolic documents. And at the end of the course, he cited that lecture as what he will remember and be something of a lasting impact from the course. You see, like David, many people know the story of David. I mean, David's story contains all the basics of a great story. You know, you have the underdog who performs big on the biggest stage and becomes a national hero. Um, You have this sort of hero as well with this sort of great flaw. Who doesn't like to see someone who's uh, more reflective of our own sort of experience of being human and the kind of world we inhabit? Uh, in spite of best intentions and the desire to be uh, someone who's fully devoted, we find ourselves uh, with flaws that after years of uh, formation in the context of Scripture and in the community of Messiah, we still find ourselves struggling with some deep uh, weaknesses and habits and 
David becomes sort of someone that we can look to that, that on the one hand is, is one who's, who's said, probably one of the best things that anyone could, could have said about them is that, that he was a man after God's own heart and yet um, he is one who is not without his own deep sinfulness. Um, and so he, he is for many of us an inspirational figure and someone who we are, are well aware of. And, and who doesn't love the, 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 the stories of First and Second Samuel? I mean, uh, when I come to First and Second Samuel in my, in my Bible reading, I just, I just love it. It's just like I can't put it down. It's such great literature. Um, and so, uh, you know, David is not someone we're unacquainted with. Yet, yet. I believe that in spite of this familiarity, David's story for most Yeshua followers uh, lacks a significant element. Um, I want to call your attention this morning in this sermon to this idea that David is uh, at the center of the story that the Bible tells in uh, the Tanakh and the New Covenant Scriptures. Uh, We will miss the most important contribution David makes if we don't appreciate that to tell the canonical story is to actually tell a Davidic story. Of course, the Bible is the story of God. Um, It's the story of God's uh, restoring the divine and human royal partnership on earth, a partnership that God had established in the Garden of Eden when he created Adam, Ish and Isha, man and woman, he created them in his image. He gave them a, a functional responsibility to, to, uh, to, to cre- create dominion over the earth, uh, to, to exercise a royal uh, function over God's beautiful creation. They were to be uh, God's vice regents, his co-rulers, um, and, and I'm not attempting in any way to, to dethrone God as the centerpiece of Scripture. But rather, my attempt this morning is to show that God's kingdom story, biblically, is linked to David's story. In fact, God's kingship is inextricably linked to David's. The biblical authors interpret David's kingdom as the fulfillment of God's plan for this world. And from the perspective of the story of Scripture, David is a narratological necessity. Let me put it another way. God expresses his authority on earth through David's human kingdom. And Yeshua, the son of David, and his kingdom become the culmination of this kingdom story. Let's put it provocatively. Without David, there is no Yeshua. And I'm not simply talking about the issue of uh, genealogical descent. Of course, as a forefather of Yeshua, David is necessary. But I'm talking more about the theological, narratological necessity of David for Yeshua's story. If we don't grasp David, we can't grip Yeshua. To understand and to grasp Yeshua, we must grip David. It is important to see David's place in this story of the Bible. 
The idea that David's story is not only central to the Bible story, but is the subject of the Bible's story. I think it's, it's, it's important that we sort of appreciate this from a particular vantage point that Chronicles gives us as the sort of last set of documents in the Tanakh. Uh, and I think that what I would like for us to notice this morning is that the way the Tanakh is shaped as a, as a, as a group of texts, as well as its, its focus on David as the sort of apex of Israel's story, is the foundation for then the story of Yeshua and the implications of Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection that are then um, um, uh, explained and articulated in the rest of the apostolic witness. Uh, one of the primary themes of uh, the books of Chronicles is the formation, establishment, decline, and then renewal of the Davidic dynasty. In Chronicles, as sort of the um, last word, the, the pinnacle of the Tanakh, uh, puts then David's story as the zenith of Israel's story. Now, to make this case this morning, uh, I want to, to uh, make four uh, points. That first, the interpretation of the story of Israel, uh, according to the book of Chronicles, is around and centered on David. I want to ex- show you that. I want to demonstrate that for you through a, a look at the, uh, at the two books of Chronicles. Um, and then I want to secondly show you that the, that the offices of king and lawgiver and priest uh, are coalesced around David. And thirdly, I want to look briefly at the Davidic promise that sort of forms a centerpiece of this account of David in Chronicles, Chronicles 17. And then finally, if you're still with me, Probably the best part of this sermon is the last part, so I saved it for the last so I could keep you with me, um, and that is to, to, to pray to, to see the, this, this equation, I'm calling the kingdom equation, um, that, that I think can, can be the basis of a, of a reimagining of Jesus's, Yeshua's teaching as the Messiah on what the kingdom of God is. So let's jump in then. The story of Israel is the story of David. That's my first point this morning. And, and I want to make this point with two pieces of evidence. The first is the intentional placement of the position of Chronicles as a part of the Tanakh. Now, if you sort of look at this chart I have of the Tanakh, of the documents of Jewish scripture, the Hebrew Bible, uh, you see that it is divided up into three sections. You have the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Now, I'm sure that you're uh, well aware of this, but just in case, uh, we get the, uh, the word Tanakh by taking the first letter of the three sections from the, from the Hebrew words, Torah, um, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. So you have a T, an N, and a K. We just put that together and we get a new word, Tanakh. Um, and I won't go into the, the detail of this, but I want to just make this historical claim uh, that is uh, quite, a, quite well established that the, the canon of Jewish scripture was largely solidified 
nearly two centuries before Yeshua. We have early evidence within a couple of centuries, give or take quarter century here or there, but we have early evidence in the second century for authors, Jewish authors, expressing this threefold division. And we even have Yeshua helping us out in a passage in Matthew 23 when he's talking about the blood spilled from Abel to Zechariah. And just take my word for it, you can look this up. We don't have time to sort of unpack this, but essentially that's the book of Genesis, the very beginning, and the book of Chronicles at the end. And so Yeshua is essentially saying that there has been innocent blood spilled throughout the canonical story of Israel from beginning to end. Now it just so happens that uh, that that corresponds quite nicely with these other witnesses to this structure. And I want you to understand then that even at the time of Yeshua and well before it, Chronicles stood as the capstone of this canonical text. Now that does not seem to be at one level patently obvious why Chronicles would be the last text. Um, because if you notice the, the, the books in that third section, uh, there is a diversity of genres from uh, poetry to, um, uh, to apocalyptic texts like Daniel to historical pieces like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and in Chronicles, uh, its story... Uh, is a historical one, um, but it, 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 it's expansive. It begins with genealogies, which, let's face it, most of us aren't completely you know, absorbed about and kind of like enthralled to get into a genealogy. Uh, but I hope you'll see that the genealogy actually matters significantly here in Chronicles as well as in Matthew's Gospel. Um, and particularly from the perspective of the authors of these documents, they start their works with genealogies because they think those, that's the best way to start the document. We might scratch our head and sort of ignore it and get to the better parts, but for them, that's how they start it. And, and so for, from, from the, the, uh, the perspective of those who, who crafted these documents, this was their sort of best attempt to make the point they want to make. But it starts with Adam, and, and it ends with uh, the decree by Cyrus, the Persian king, for uh, the Judean exiles who wished to return. But it, it doesn't necessarily fit as the last book, uh, given its sort of nature and its historical sort of uh, breadth, um, except that, except that, uh, as the summation of the whole, it's perfectly situated. It seems quite clear that its intention in its position was to be something of an interpretive grid for all of Israel's story that had been laid out prior to that. And, and what if you look at the, uh, the slide I have here, uh, you'll see I've highlighted, bolded some of the texts in the Torah, Genesis particularly, and then the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and the kings. And then in the writings, you have Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. 
Um, and if you kind of think through that, you'll, you would actually see that there's kind of a tight chronology that extends through the Tanakh. And that chronology is then sort of uh, interrupted in places when uh, sort of non-historical narratives are, are put in as complementary. So in the, in the, in the Torah, you, you kind of have this, this more um, assimilated text where you have narrative and non-narrative pieces, whether it's law, uh, code, or whether it's uh, poetry. It, it's much more sort of um, um, uh, sequenced and synthetic. In the prophets, the former and the latter, you sort of have these two categories. You have the history and then you have the oracles. But still, it's that sort of pattern of historical narrative on the one hand and the non-historical narrative that sort of supplements and complements the historical narrative. And it's the same thing then in the Tanakh with Esther, uh, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah being the core historical section. And you say, well, what, what about Ruth? Isn't Ruth historical narrative? Well, yes, but it seems that the intention of the organizers was to put Ruth with Psalms as a sort of an introduction to Psalms, something of a historical um, uh, prequel to the Psalms of David. That seems to be why Ruth is in that sort of latter section. But if we sort of put that to, a, to the side, you'll see that then you have kind of this narrative and then these, these poetic wisdom books, again in that sort of pattern of historical narrative and other uh, pieces of narrative. Notice most of that uh, wisdom and poetry revolves around the Davidic uh, characters of David and Solomon. So when Chronicles then is placed, it's, it's sort of sequentially not in that sort of order of sequence that, that brings sort of with Ezra and Nehemiah kind of a conclusion. And so Chronicles stands sort of outside the order to be something of the summation of the whole. Is that, you're following me? So, so the point I'm making then, coming back to the, to the point, it's this, that just looking at sort of standing back and thinking about how the canon is shaped, which is something we don't really ever do, we just sort of take it for granted, we don't realize that it's actually a piece of art that was sort of thoughtfully and intentionally shaped to to make a point. And as we move forward, you're going to see that that point centers on David. And so what I want to say to you then is if, if, the, if the, the, the shapers of this canon put chronicles at the end in order to be the summation of the whole, and it's a sort of apexing in David, then guess what? The Torah, the prophets, and the writings together tell a story about David. Uh, Roger Beckwith has perhaps said it eloquently in an important book where he says this about the, um, the, those who, who put Chronicles as the last uh, set of texts in the Tanakh. He says, the reasons why Chronicles is placed in the uh, Hagiographa, or the writings, are probably the genealogy from Adam onwards with which it begins and the brief account of the return from the exile which it ends. These enable it to stand at the end of the canon as a recapitulation, which is a large word that scholars love to use. It's essentially a summation of the whole biblical story from creation to return. Now, 
Uh, that is kind of an external piece of evidence. This, the, the other piece of evidence that shows that, that, that Chronicles is kind of the story of Israel as the story of David is the geneal, genealogies uh, in, the, in the text of Chronicles itself, which uh, essentially tells a story from, from Adam to David. Um, and I, I uh, cannot by any means do this justice. You're going to have to sort of uh, jot down these, these scripture texts and sort of look at this for yourself. But I, I want you to see that the, the genealogy in the first nine chapters sort of function as the introduction to the two-volume work, setting out its key themes. Um, and and it's, it's probably not a coincidence that sort of Matthew's structure is similar to this setting out a, a genealogy that, by the way, we're going to look at later this afternoon. If you're uh, intrigued enough to stick around, uh, you'll hear more about Matthew's uh, perspective on this, but it seems to have been influenced by Chronicles. Um, and so the two books of Chronicles form one book in the Jewish Scripture, not two, but one. And when the Hebrew texts were translated into Greek, then they were divided into two um, but uh, in, in the original Hebrew scroll, they were, they were one text. Um, and so this observation helps us understand that the function of the genealogy is to help us understand and, and, and help us to interpret the narrative that Chronicles will tell. And if you kind of dig into that genealogy, um, you'll essentially see that it's organized around some key figures, Adam, then Abraham, and then the, the, uh, then the tribes of Israel, which in that section, that section about Israel's tribal uh, uh, families comes to a, 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 a head with this, the, uh, the genealogy of, of David. So the line of ancestry begins with Adam, runs through Abraham to Israel's tribal league, and then to the zenith of the Davidic dynasty. So to put it very clearly and frankly, the genealogy in Chronicles presents the uh, Tanakh's story as David's story, his previous ancestry and subsequent legacy. Kind of the way Chronicles sees it is the, uh, the history and the family lines before David are kind of David's backstory. I think Walter... Uh, Brueggemann says it very poignantly and eloquently as he would. The chronicler has no interest in history until David appears. <laughs> That's great. I mean, maybe not for those that uh, it's, it's uh, quickly uh, sidelining, but as, a, as an interpretation of chronicles, it captures it quite powerfully. And therefore, it can be treated as such a, or as such a summary in summary fashion. The structure of the text indicates that all of history has been waiting for David, who begins a new history. Indeed, the only history that matters is this religious community. Everything else before David is preliminary and can be handled in a footnote. It is as though the whole universe has been waiting for this man and this moment. I love that. The whole universe. Not just the story of Israel, but the story of humanity, the story of creation has been waiting for this man in this moment. And I think that captures the point well, that the story that Chronicles tells is a story about David. 
Now, before I move on, I need to do something that uh, I probably wouldn't do other places in a sermon, uh, but this, uh, this particular congregation, um, I feel very comfortable doing this, and that is to give you a word that you may not know. I need to define a word because I want to use it because it's a wonderful word. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and this word is going to help us understand uh, how uh, uh, the chronicler is taking earlier parts of Israel's story and assuming them, subsuming them into David. The word is sublate. It's a verb. Probably, if I did a cert- if I asked for for hands, I, I, I would imagine most of you have not heard this word before. Sublation would be the noun. Sublate and sublation. I'm going to argue that the chronicler sublates the earlier parts of the Israel story into David. Now. This word sublate comes from Hegelian philosophy, which is not something a lot of us are reading. Uh, and, and Hegel used it to name the process, and this is important, so listen carefully. Hegel used it to name the process of something being replaced while at the same time being retained and preserved. And that's so important. Replaced, yet retained and preserved. Abstractly, this Hegelian structure captures, I think, the process the chronicle undertakes in his narrative discourse about Israel's history from Adam to Cyrus's decree. Terms like supersession, supersessionism, replacement, these are inappropriate, although have been historically used, if not explicitly, certainly functionally, the practice of interpreters has been supersession replacement, negation. But, but with this word sublate, what we see is a, is a replacement with a continuing preservation and inclusion of the previous uh, uh, realities. Am I making sense? Uh, a commentator, Fett, on Chronicles, says it this way, David's authority does not conflict with or supersede that of Moses. David's actions complement and supplement Moses' commandments. You see, the benefit then of this word sublation, and I'm not sure it's going to capture many people's usage, but I'm going to try to make this sort of uh, like gallant uh, uh, attempt in, in the world that I live in in terms of academic language to talk about the way in which uh, in the New Covenant Scriptures, uh, Israel's story in David is, is sublated. It's, 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 yes, there's a new phase, but, but everything before it is preserved and included. And so it's not supersession in any stretch of the imagination. Now, this is going to make Howard very happy, but I have, uh, and I'm returning, because I brought this out last year, this uh, Matarushka set of, of Yankee dolls, uh, beginning with the biggest uh, uh, Ruth, uh, leading then to Mantle, um, then followed by Dimage, Dimaggio, um, and I'm not sure I, I love this order. I think I would have, if it was up to me, I would have put this in slightly different order because you got, you got Gehrig as the smallest and last, and that doesn't make any sense. And Gehrig, come on, Yogi Berra. Would you say that Gehrig is before Berra? Or, uh, yes, I would too. It should, yeah. You know, it should be... Uh, uh, anyway, uh, this, this set of Martyrushka dolls has, for me, become the best 
uh, way to illustrate what I'm now sort of calling sublation. And that is that, that, that you can look at any particular uh, Yankee great, and this sort of obviously is a set of Yankee greats. Uh, I don't see Jeter there, so we should, we should add a, another one perhaps. But, but w- the point is, when you sort of put these together, uh, you don't lose uh, Barra or Gehrig uh, or, or Dimage or Mantle, um, and you don't lose any of them. They come together into this sort of holistic uh, Matarushka doll that's Ruth, but now this one is all the greater because of what's included inside it, right? You got that? So this isn't a replacement of the earlier bits. It's, it's now the culmination of, uh, and, and as it stands, it represents all of the greatness of the Yankee organization from its early history to today. Now, be that as it may about the Yankees and what you think about them, uh, but... Uh, the point is that this is what I mean and what I, how I'm using this idea of sublation. Um, and, and this is what I essentially think the chronicler is doing to Israel's story. Um, and, and so it's not Ruth in the chronicles, it's David. Um, and as we move into the apostolic documents, it's David's greater son, Yeshua, who then becomes uh, the ultimate um, representative of all of uh, the truth uh, of Israel's story. Okay, so I needed to kind of establish that sort of framework, that conceptualization. And, and I, I know that, you know, again, I, I, I wouldn't typically in a sermon do this, but uh, I am the visiting scholar, and this is Beth Messiah Congregation, so I'm going all in on this, okay? But I really think in my own, in my own sense that, that this can, uh, if you can kind of th- let this kind of percolate it can, it can help you sort of imagine the unity of Scripture and the unity of, of Israel's story in the Messiah um, and, and potentially will lead you uh, into reading the bits much uh, better than, than had you not sort of brought a framework to it. Because we, we all bring frameworks to our reading. It's impossible. And, and that's part of the challenge of, of reading scripture is nobody reads scripture in a vacuum. Um, nobody reads scripture by themselves, even if they're sitting by themselves. They read scripture based on the assumptions and frameworks that they have gathered either directly from sort of specific teaching or implicitly just by sort of living in a, in a particular culture of thinking about scripture. And I grew up in a church where it was sort of like the Bible and me, and the, whole, and the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, but the Holy Spirit was, was often sort of um, uh, usurped by, by sort of, um, you know, reading strategies and, and, and frameworks that, that, that sort of uh, uh, held hostage and sabotaged, in my own sort of now looking back, on, on really understanding both my own situatedness and how my framework was determining the way I read, uh, and also how... Um, this whole idea of, of kind of an individualistic reading of Scripture is actually uh, not only impossible, but actually not even something that we should aspire to. We read in the context of community, and as a community, we need to be aware that we bring frameworks to this reading. And so what I'm suggesting with this concept of sublation is, is to sort of uh, to see it, what I take in, in 
we can argue about this if you'd like, or dialogue argues, too strong a word, dialogue, if this is the best conceptual framework, but it does lead into a reading that I think, um, to put it in this way, uh, reflects what is implied by the text itself. And, uh, and so, um, here we go. Okay, so with that framework, then I can talk about the coalescing of these offices, and I'll do this uh, uh, hopefully rather briefly, particularly the first point, it's, it's real obvious that, uh, that uh, David replaces, supersedes, in this sense, Saul's kingship. And we have this very clear statement in uh, uh, 1 Chronicles 10, verse 14, God transferred the kingdom to David, son of Jesse. A little bit more important uh, for, for sort of thinking about Chronicles and a little bit more complicated is this uh, coalescing of, uh, of Moses' legislation as lawgiver uh, by, by David. And so I need to spend a, a little bit more time on this one. Uh, it's interesting to note something about the chronicler. That's the, the name that we often use to talk about who authored the chronicles, the chronicler. There, there seems to be little to no mention of Moses in the genealogy. That seems to be rather remarkable. Uh, he's only mentioned in reference to his genealogical listing in chapter 6, verse 3. The chronicler casts David um, as a type of Moses. And so it seems that perhaps the, uh, the uh, backgrounding of Moses and the foregrounding of David uh, isn't necessarily to delegitimize Moses, but it is to sort of show that Moses' sort of legacy is now um, set and uh, taken forward by David. So in, the, in the, uh, the Torah, it's Moses who organizes the worship around the tabernacle. In Chronicles, it's David who organizes the worship in the preparation of the temple. And David is actually presented as a lawgiver on par with Moses. There are statements in the chronicle, the Chronicles uh, that put legislation regarding the, uh, the worship of the, of the temple alongside the legislation given by Moses. And even at times, you have David and his legislation revising that of uh, Moses' legislation. Um, probably a an example like the Levites, who uh, in the Mosaic legislation are sort of uh, servants of the articles of the tabernacle because it's a moving tent. Uh, and, and in the time when the tabernacle becomes the temple, those, those, those duties um, shift and David re, reframes them to be something of a, a more of a, of a choir uh, more of a uh, uh, of of a participation in the in the worship of uh, and the liturgy of the uh, of the uh, temple. Um, so the structure of the story in chronicle in the chronicles reveals an assumption of Moses into David. And when you compare uh, the the other sort of story of David, say in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, alongside the story in Chronicles, this this sort of assumption of Moses by David is 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 quite dramatically visible. Uh, one 
author says this, barely named are Moses and Aaron among the sons of Levi, merely as a genealogical scaffolding. Even the reference to the Mosaic law are brief and perfunctory. And so while scholars debate the significance of this implication for the chronicler's story, the primary interest of Chronicles is the formation, establishment, decline, and expectation of a reemergence of the Davidic dynasty. Um, The community uh, is being invited, who's reading this and receiving this, is being invited to read its earlier tradition in a particular manner. They're invited to see uh, the, the... Uh, the traditions as expounded in relationship to what are here seen as the central moments, David, Jerusalem, and temple. Let me me just frame it one other way. So so what the author of Chronicles is doing is trying to sort of put the, the past in relationship to the present. And the chronicler places David's story as the pinnacle of Israel's story. The founding of both the temple and the dynasty are presented as the high points of the story, the the, the points at which the story was always moving. David is presented as the best Moses and as the head of all of Israel. In a number of scenes, David is presented as doing the same things Moses did. For example, the installation of the ark in Jerusalem after taking the city. David is sort of an ad hoc officiant over the, the altar, he summons the people, he pitches the tent, he blesses the people. And all of these actions, uh, Moses is presented as doing in the Torah in an earlier stage of history. As, as David has already been presented as a new Joshua in this text, uh, delivering Israel, securing Israel in the land, uh, here he's portrayed also as a new Moses uniquely favored with intimacy with God, above and beyond the forms and institutions of worship that he was bequeathed uh, uh, in the Mosaic tradition. So I, I think you, you've, gotten, you've gotten a flavor enough. Let me, let me just show you one other uh, powerful illustration of, of this. Um, in the dedication of the, of the temple by Solomon, uh, it's recorded in two places, same event, two places. It's a kind of a synoptic comparison here. Second Chronicles 6 uh, and 1 Kings 8. Uh, notice that at the, at the sort of the culmination of Solomon's prayer, uh, notice the difference between Chronicles and Kings. Let's start with Kings first, okay? May your eyes, Solomon says, be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, and may you heed them whenever they call upon you. Now, so that's the, that's the, the, the request. Now he's going to ground it. He's going he's to say, now here's why, God, I'm asking you to do this. On what basis am I asking you to do this? On this basis, that's the word for there. Because you, O Lord God, have set them apart for yourself, that is the people of Israel, from all the peoples of the earth as your very own. This is, this is almost a, a, a trans, sort of a word-for-word translation from Exodus 19. So this is, this is a sort of a direct link to that sort of crucial passage um, in Exodus 19. So you have chosen this people from all the peoples of the earth to be your very own, as you promised through Moses, your servant, servant, when you freed your father, our fathers from Egypt. Okay, so in, in Kings, 
the basis for God's action on the part of building his temple in Solomon's prayer is the exodus with Moses at its lead. Now, the chronicler's retelling of that is is very interesting. Notice how he grounds the same prayer. So 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles 6. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer from this place. It's a little shorter, but it's the same thing, right? Now get this, the why. And now advance, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and your mighty ark. Your priests, O Lord God, are clothed in triumph. Your loyal ones will rejoice in your goodness, O Lord God. Do not reject your anointed one. Remember the loyalty of your servant, David. What becomes the basis in Chronicles is the commitment that God made to David. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that these are somehow in in conflict with one another. What I'm trying to suggest is that that the, the call in Chronicles... And the, and, the, and the request for God to pay attention is based on David's promise that God made, which is the extension of the earlier promises and covenants that God had made. It's not, it's not a replacement in a negation way. It is, a re, it is something of a replacement that preserves and includes the earlier part. But it is focused on David. There has been something of a, of, a, of a modulation, of a revision there, which is fascinating, I think, and goes to the point I've been trying to make. Now, I need to go a little faster here now because I've, I've about uh, spent the, the, the time. Um, but uh, let me just say, uh, having established that point, which I think is, is very important, What's interesting is to see the way in which David is also acting priestly um, in, a, in a way that almost seems, um, you know, contrary to what was uh, clearly the, distif- the differentiations between the priesthood and kingship. It doesn't seem to apply to David. David seems to exercise priestly pejoratives in a way that was, would have been for others inappropriate. Um, and I just need to just state that and kind of move on. But you seem to sort of see David as taking up a priestly identity as well as a kingly identity. Okay, so we've established a couple of things. That the story of Chronicles is the story of David. And if the story of Chronicles is the story of David, then the story of the Israel's scriptures is the story of David. Um, and then I've, I've showed you that the... Uh, Offices of king and lawgiver and priest have coalesced, have been sublated by David. And now I just want to briefly speak to the significance of the Davidic promise in 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, we looked at this a bit carefully last night from 2 Samuel 7. Um, and so I'm just going to merely make some comments about the unique elements of 1 Chronicles 17, um, that I think are powerfully important to thinking about how Chronicles and the David story represents the culmination of the story of Israel. Um, The first statement is just to say that God's kingship 
And, and this is, you know, sometimes I, I think we, 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 we know this to a degree, but it doesn't sort of grab us. We don't sort of think about it. But think about this, that God's kingship that is eternal, uh, it's, it's trans-historical, it's creational, that kingship in the Davidic promise has been inextricably linked to David's. So, so, so in practice, what that means is that how David's kingdom uh, 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 exercises and expresses itself is to be ex- ex- sort of a, a, a one-to-one correlation to, to God's kingdom. Now, now David's kingdom doesn't, doesn't capture everything about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is, is, is vast and creational and universal, but on earth, and this is the key thing. Remember, God's kingship on earth. On earth, God's universal kingship is concretized in David's. In other words, if you want to know what God's like and what God's kingdom is like, <clears throat> and if you want to know what God's agenda is, essentially then you're supposed to look at David's throne. David's throne, which is going to include the temple in Jerusalem, that is to be the place on earth where heaven and earth meet. That is the beginning of the resinking of heaven and earth. The Davidic throne and it, all of its sort of elements, Jerusalem, the temple, that is the beginning of the reconnecting, the reclaiming of what had was lost by rebellion and sin. It is the background, really, of Jesus' prayer, which is not really Jesus' prayer as much as it's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and at the end of Matthew I'm giving you a hint of today the end of Matthew the resurrected Yeshua Messiah says all authority has been given to me on in heaven and on earth gives me goosebumps just this sort of the thought of that like Yeshua is saying that that the reality of the of the heaven and earth being synced is happened in the resurrection. And then he sends out the Jewish disciples on mission to non-Jewish nations to, to, to announce and to call them, in the words of Paul, to become obedient, faithfully obedient to the Messiah. The apostolic mission among the non-Jewish nations was to make them uh, obedient to the Messiah. The obedience of faith, the obedience of the loyalty to the Messiah getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, but I, I couldn't help it. I mean, we are talking about the Davidic throne that is the place on earth where, where, where God's kingdom and, and the earthly sort of tangible element, the concrete element of that is seen. That's, that was the intention. Um, and, and Chronicles, in its retelling, uh, gives us a, a perspective that is creational in a way that's different than even 2 Samuel 7, with um, this reintroduction of a, of a term for God that we find really only in the uh, early Genesis accounts, the, 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 the two words for God, uh, Elohim and Yahweh, together. Uh, that's rare in, in Jewish scripture to have them sort of side by side like that, but they're reinserted here. And it's as if the author is saying, hint, hint, hello, hey, this is, this is the reclaiming of what was lost there. God's purposes for David were 
purposes for all of creation. What is good for Israel is good for creation. Um, and this is, this is underlined, I think, um, in, in, in a statement that David makes, recorded in verse 17, where he says, you are showing me a law, and here law is a reference to sort of the, the, the Davidic promise for the uplifting of humanity, Lord God. David seemed to understand intuitively that what God was promising him was for all people, a universality in the blessing and the outcome of the Davidic promise. And, and thereby, David links uh, his divine promise with the universal blessing in God's promise to Abraham and even Adam before him. And so you have uh, a restatement, in a way, of the Abrahamic promise that uh, I will bless you and, uh, and others will bless themselves as they bless you. The, the blessing of Abraham being something that was to be for Abraham and for uh, the nations of the earth. All right, let me just then wrap up with this equation that I referenced, and thank you for sticking with me. And I will say I think this is the most important part of my sermon up to this point, although there were many important things I said. But this is important because I have heard and read numerous times that the phrase the kingdom of God does not appear in the Jewish scriptures. Like it's somehow the, 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 the idea, the concept of God reigning is in Jewish scriptures, but the phrase is not there. And, uh, and, uh, and you, you, after this short conversation, you'll see why this is interesting. Uh, but in fact, uh, we do have a Hebrew phrase, the kingdom of God. It just happens to be in Chronicles and it also happens to be that nobody reads Chronicles. Like, I'm going to make a cottage industry of Chronicles. There's a lot of, I mean, you know, nobody's writing about Chronicles. There's a lot, like, I could be the Chronicles guy. Um, but what you see is that there's this equation in Chronicles, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of David. Uh, these, these concepts, kingdom of God, kingdom of Israel, kingdom of David, are are equated in Chronicles, and not just once or twice, like several times. Like If you read Chronicles carefully, you can't come away from it not thinking, wait a minute, kingdom of God, kingdom of Israel, kingdom of David. God's kingdom on earth is David's kingdom. So let me just give you some of that evidence. First Chronicles 17, verse 14, and I'm just going to throw them out quickly. I will install him in my house and in my kingship forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is God talking about the Davidic king. I will install him in my house, my dynasty, my kingship. First Chronicles 28, 5. And of all his sons, for many are the sons of the Lord, the Lord gave me, he chose my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. The kingdom of the Lord over Israel is the throne that Solomon is going to sit on for crying out loud. 1 Chronicles 29-23 Solomon successfully took over the throne of the Lord as king instead of his father David and he went well and it and all went well with him and all Israel accepted him. 2 Chronicles 13:8 Now you are bent on Opposing the kingdom of the Lord, 
which is in the charge of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and possess the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Context is not important right now. It's just to see this kind of concept. And then Second Corinthians, Second, you know, I'm a New Covenant Scriptures scholar, so it, it, Chronicles always often comes out as Corinthians for some reason. Second Chronicles nine eight. Blessed is the Lord your God who favored you and set you on His throne as King before the Lord. It is because of your God's love for Israel and in order to establish them forever that he has made you king over them to execute righteous justice. That constellation of passages make a very clear point that from the author's perspective, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're also on earth talking about the kingdom of Israel, which is tangible in the throne of David. And we could look at Psalms, because Psalm 2, for example, says, why are the nations raging? Don't they know that they're coming against the Lord and his anointed one? When you mess with David, you're messing with God. There is a direct correlation. So I have made the argument this morning, and you might have said long-windedly, but there you go. The scriptures of the Tanakh and the apostles are Davidic story. And while there is more than one way to tell the story of the Bible, there is. Uh, this is a distinctively uh, Yeshua apostolic way of framing the story. Um, there seems to be something implied in the organization of the very biblical canon that encourages us to see that the story of the Bible is the story of David. The followers of Yeshua believe the Bible story is a story about Yeshua. Yeshua taught us to read it that way. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, 44. But if the Tanakh stories serve the story of David, and the Tanakh story of David serves the story of Yeshua in the New Testament, the Bible's subject is more specific. The Bible's subject is Yeshua, the son of David. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving your people, the Chronicles. Forgive us for not spending nearly enough time having our minds shaped and ultimately our hearts alit with the kingship of David that is the reflection of your kingship. And Lord, we know that the kingship of David in its, in its first instance in David and in subsequent descendants was on the whole very far from what you intended. There were some bright spots, but until the coming of David's greater son, Yeshua, your people waited for the fullness of the potential of the Davidic promise. And we thank you that with the coming of Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, you are restoring creation and you are inviting people of every tribe nation and tongue into a intimate relationship with you and into the fullness of of our created intention which is to be with you in the exercise of justice and mercy and kindness and goodness in a world that is so dark and so void of that kind of rule. Thank you for the reminder 
And I pray that we would have a vision for a life that reflects your kingship on earth. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Savior, our Lord. Amen.